This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. James Phelps, welcome to Better Reading. G'day, how are you? I'm really good. When did we last chat? Was it? I think it was after Australian Heist, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah. After my first historical nonfiction. Yeah, yeah. So much has happened since. It has. Uh, (laughs) Hasn't it? James is an award-winning sports journalist and also a true crime writer. His books about life inside Australia's most brutal prisons have shocked and fascinated many readers. He's back with his new book, The Inside Man, an action-packed thriller set inside a tough prison. But this is fiction. This is your first hand at fiction. Is that right? Absolutely. And what a ride it's been. Um, yeah, giving fiction a go and actually thought it would be uh, easier than writing nonfiction going into the project. And boy, was I in for a shock. Tell me why. Um, first of all, I was confronted with POV really for the first time. And it sounds pretty easy. You've either got obviously first person or third person. My biggest uh, shock straight away was that there's a second person. So I actually had to go through my bookshelf and try and find one. And I dug out a uh, old choose your own adventure with a with a U in it. And um, obviously I got to rule that one out straight away. But I chose um, third person without thinking about it too much and yeah, obviously quickly found the pitfalls of having too many POVs and also as a non-fiction author, you get a little bit of a habit of going omniscient, which is, uh, you know, obviously a no-no with fiction, but, you know, the whole uh, me being very godly and wanting to tell everyone facts uh, had to get rubbed out of my repertoire pretty pretty quickly. It's really interesting because I don't think I've, I mean, I've spoken to hundreds of authors over the last couple of years since we launched our podcast, but I don't think anybody has described the difference of writing fiction to nonfiction as well as you have. And I guess because you had written nonfiction for so long, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I actually found the the plotting relatively easy and also, also the character arcs to a degree, which I thought would be troubling, but the POV, yeah, really took a lot of work and I went and did a lot of research. And the funny thing is you read all the, the advice on it and it's, you know, generally... Can st- you explain to some people that might not know what that means? Yeah, well, POV, what, what I'm saying, third person, that's he. Yeah. Um, first person is I. Um, yeah. And I actually stumbled on my, was doing my research that most first-time fiction writers use first person because you automatically avoid all these pitfalls of having too many POVs. When you write in he, you tend to um, want to get inside the head of all the people you're writing about. So you'll go into their POV and you get into this interesting thing called head hopping, which I manage to do quite quite often. And that's where you're actually starting someone's POV and then you they'll be talking to another character and you decide to get in their head. And you almost do it by default sometimes because you think you can. 
and it's called Head Hopping. And there's an interesting book called Dune. I think um, it's a great classic sci-fi. And he actually did head hopping through the whole book and it worked. And there's an interesting school of thought that he may have done it by mistake where others say he was a complete genius and and pulled it off. But, um, yeah, they actually say try to limit it because you confuse the reader and you also lose touch with uh, your character. When you're writing an eye, the reader becomes very familiar with that character and can identify with them. And it's a bit more detached when you're using he. Um, so I did a lot of reading and research into it and, it just confused me even more because so many people don't conform, even though the publisher and all the good writing experts are saying don't go more than two or three POVs. Some of the best best fiction you read has multiple and they're everywhere. There's no sort of formula. And then um, when you're in terms of going omniscient, and that, 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 that omniscient means that you're a godly figure. So think a narrator. So you interject with facts and you, you say things that the reader or, or your character wouldn't know. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's the biggest no-no of all. But I was writing a spy thriller and um, you go to John Licare and he was renowned for doing it. Every single second line he'll tell you something that he shouldn't be telling you. And so, yeah, it's very, very confusing um, trying to follow rules but then you find your favourite authors don't. So Yeah, I quite like that. I, I love John Licare. Do you know as a reader, and I'm sure some people will be surprised to hear this, and I've spoken to many, many people about writing, I can never get past the story. I don't, yeah. pick, I don't pick technique up at all, if it's a good book, of course, Um I do not pick up technique at all. It's the same with film. Like people say to me, oh, yes, and the, the, the speak, you know, the mic must have been there and whatever. No, 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 no. I don't see any of that. I just watch the film. When I'm reading a book, I don't see any of that. I just read the story. And, and I guess when it is that I can't read the story is maybe when the technique's wrong. Yeah, I think so. And I went back to my, my saviour, Stephen King, yeah. Uh, my childhood idol and still my idol. He's got a fantastic book called Stephen King on writing and he says exactly that. He says, don't get caught up in your writing style or how you're writing it. Get caught up in the story. And he yeah. said, if you're telling the story exactly, you know, how it's coming out of your head and how you want it to be told, um, you're doing you're doing the right job. But, of course, as you just said, um, generally the people that are telling the story best are using correct writing technique and there is there is a right. basic formula behind it and, and rules that, you know, you should follow. And even if you're going to break them, it's probably best that you know those rules. Yeah, you know that you're breaking them. Okay, James, I want to go right back to how the writing started and I want to go through your career. So take me right back. Where did you grow up? Where did your love of writing start? Um, my love of writing started, jeez, uh, I'd probably say seven or eight when I um, was given my first Stephen King book. I think I was sick. We used to wow. live in the bush at a place called Bar Eugle near Grafton and um, we were down in Sydney for some reason at my grandmother's house. I think it was the school holidays and I spent that whole six weeks in bed and um, my dad for some reason gave me Salem's Lot by Stephen King, which I, I would have been six, I guess. And, wow, yeah, that's a big book to give to a six-year-old. Big book and, yeah, full of some um, probably adult-only content, but I think my dad knew that that's what would hook me in and it did straight away. But in saying that, it's started earlier, I can't remember it, but my mother a few years ago, it might have been after my first book I wrote, she presented me with a, a pile of books, little self-made uh, covered with pictures that I started writing in kindergarten. So oh, great wow. titles like The Ghost Train and The Wicked Witch 
And um, yeah, I'd, I'd rather good titles. Self-published ten books uh, in in kindergarten. So wow. pretty much, so I probably started before my love of reading. I had a love of writing, and obviously they go hand in hand. The, the more you read, the more competent you become at become at writing. I, I, you know, I don't want to be um, put labels on gender here, but it is more unusual for boys to be doing that. You know, they say often teachers will tell you that boys come to reading a bit later, and boys yeah, come to writing uh, a bit later. My dad was a really big reader. He always had books in his hand. He was uh, the fantasy genre Lord of the Rings. He actually named my sister Arwen. <laughs> um, so thankfully, thankfully, I didn't get Bilbo. No. Uh, Thankfully. I think mum won that battle, but he actually wanted to call me Aragon. So. Oh, my God. Gosh, you're yeah. lucky your mum won that battle. My sister had some enough difficulties <laughs> as it was and she kind of had a bit of a renaissance when Lord of the Rings came out. She said, see, it is a real name. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden everybody knew her name and how to pronounce it. Yeah, and I guess after conquering that first Salem's lot, it was just, you know, what else does Stephen King do? I think my next book was Tommy Knockers. It scared me away because it was a thousand, a thousand odd pages, but uh, that didn't come till after I saw the movie in uh, year four. But yeah, I always did. And another thing I, I I've dug out recently, which I'd forgotten all about, is I've got a, a letter from Roald Dahl sitting, oh, wow. sitting here and signed. I um, made him a picture book when I was in year three and sent it across to the UK and he actually um, yeah, penned the letter back saying it was one of the best things a child has ever sent him and how uh, thrilled he was to have received it. And um, Oh, yeah, my God, that's pretty extraordinary. Cool thing to have there. Yeah, really cool. Were you a big fan? Um, so, you know, James and the Giant Shit. Yeah, yeah I was. Um, I think we read it at school and it was a school project where I wrote the letter. So, no, I was secretly, you know, reading Stephen King and Dean Koontz in the background, but, you know, Roald Dahl, I you know, loved the the, the pictures and the storylines, but, you know, I was conquering probably, you know, demons and ghosts and things like that in my, my own time. Okay, so then, um, so when did you decide what you wanted to be? Did you always think it was going to be around writing? No, so that that's where the, the, it all takes a turn. So high school, I became a pretty proficient football player, rugby league. Um, right. Started making rep teams and... Um, Anyway, went full steam into football when I was 15, got signed by the, the Bulldogs who are in our all side and went off with that. And then with that lifestyle, probably came lots of training, uh, drinking too much beer at 16 and 17 and but not girls. Much reading. And, yeah, long story short, my schooling dipped away and my trial HSC, I actually got 15 and under in English. Yeah. And my English teacher and I didn't get on at all and uh, she told me that, you know, I'd be lucky to get a job. Um, never alone be a writer. So I think she discouraged me to the point where I didn't think I had the ability to be a writer. Mm. And um, that all disappeared. And I forgot about everything, all my reading, forgot about those little books that I'd written, forgotten about the Roald Dahl thing and um, focused on being a footy player. And then that all went pear-shaped when I got injured. And it wasn't until early 20s, I guess, I uh, got a job at News Corp in a production role, which was basically a, a glorified printer and I was working night shift and I was working around all these journalists and it opened my eyes a little bit. But again, I didn't think I could do it. That I, I didn't think I, my writing was good enough. I didn't think I could be a journo. But all these league journos worked out that I knew a lot of league people and that I played to a certain level and they started coming to me for stories. So I'd slip them a few here and there 
And it eventually got to the stage where I said, screw this, I'm going to write it. And I'm going to start writing and become a journalist myself. It wasn't, I guess, my writing, my love of writing that got me in there. It was my knowledge of league that got me into reporting. And once I got in and started writing and worked out, I was quite good at it. Um, it just renewed my my ambition for writing and, and sparked my uh, my love of it and got me into it. One thing led to the next. and I guess uh, it's because it's writing what you know, right? Yeah, yeah, to a degree. But, yeah, I, I, you know, I do love writing. And I also ended up getting a lot higher in my real HSC after I studied for a week. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that I couldn't spell. <laughs> Did you have you ever written back to that teacher and said, see, see where oh, I'd I love to. She, yeah, she, like, I remember I actually put in some effort for – for one assignment and I thought it was the best in the class and she failed me and I was <gasps> like, I know why you failed me. It's not because of the quality of my work. Wow, that's terrible, isn't it? You don't hear that many bad stories about teachers. Mm. Hey, listen, I can see, um, is that a pet bird in the background? Pet bird? It's not a pet. It's a pest bird. Oh, it's a <laughs> pest bird. Yeah, it actually, it's, it's a cockatoo. Yeah. It arrives every day probably about this time, and if you're lucky enough, you'll hear it knocking on the glass in a minute. So it, if it doesn't get fed, it comes and rubs its beak against the glass and knocks. And Oh, how yeah, gorgeous. I was speaking to you. I was speaking with Richard Flanagan recently. You know, his daughter saved a bird um, and uh, they've, he had had one in his office. But halfway through the interview, we had to get rid of uh, the, the bird had to exit because uh, it was so noisy. It was talking above us. Yeah, we, we have no pets, but I have a cockatoo that visits me every day. And at night, it's the possums. Oh, wow. So we, we feed them bananas. And is it the same cockatoo that comes every day? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's wow. a couple of them that come, but there's only one that knocks. And I actually had to do a bit of research on them and I found out, and this is an interesting fact for everybody, if you look yeah. at a cockatoo closely, the females have brown eyes and the males have black eyes. So oh, wow. That's That's how you distinguish. And, yeah, the pest is a woman, of course. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm quite liking her in the background there. Anyway, sorry, that was distracting because I think she must have knocked. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. So you're a sports journalist, I guess, by then. Was that right? Yeah. Yeah. I started off. I actually had to go into um, my cadetship. They wouldn't yes. take me on unless I did the training. Yeah. And um, that but was. But what an opportunity. Yeah, it was. I worked for, mind you, I worked for free for probably 18 months. Wow. I had my night shift job. And during the day, I was going in and pretending to be a reporter and breaking some really big stories. And that was. Um, well, they eventually took me on. A few people didn't want to hire me because I wasn't qualified or didn't have the, the degree, but um, in, eventually the weight of work that I've been putting in, and, you know, they sent me to cover the grand final in 2005 when I wasn't even a journalist, so it was pretty cool. But, wow. yeah, they took me on and I went and did the news rounds and mid-dawns and crime and then got back to sport where I belong. And were you pinching yourself? Like how did I get here? Yeah, I guess so. No, I don't think so. I worked that hard to do it. I think that, yeah, it was, you know, I knew I, I, knew I belonged and deserved it after, you know, writing hundreds yeah. of bylines for free. And there was some, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a time in journalism, right, where you, you could get in through work experience and cadetship. And now it's a university degree. Do they no, no, it's not. It? It's not. It's, I think there's a preference there for people without degrees because what we find is, it's a very, oh, okay. it's, it's a very, you get given an opportunity and you need to take it style business. So yes. yes, there still are work experience opportunities and you can still come in and, you know, have a crack for free. And you find that the university trained people generally think that they deserve it more than anyone else. And a lot of the work is beneath them. 
So, right. And it's the people that come in and just rip and tear, get in there, pick up the phones, want to do anything and everything. A brief's not, you know, underneath them. Um, they're the people that get the jobs. And I think there's a bit of uh, bad training that goes on with the universities as well that, you know, they're already tainted in a way. So especially at, at news, you know, it's about work ethic above most things. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad that still happens. I didn't know that there were still two parts of entry. I brought a kid who was, uh, you know, emailing me along to work, put him in the office and the, the newspaper gave him a little story to do and he said, oh, no, I want to write an opinion piece about the Prime Minister. Oh, dear, and, uh, right. You, you, might want to, you might want to work up to that one. You might want to work up to that one. There's a few more steps to get there. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So sport is a big interest. Talk to me about your true crime writing. Again, uh, something I fell into or I wrote a couple of sport books. First one was on Chad Reed, who's a bike guy. Um, that didn't end up getting published because he um, didn't like a few things in it. And I think his wife gave him some pressure, so he bought the contract back uh, after it was finished. And I kind of took that pretty hard and thought, you know, either two ways, I'm never doing this again or go and do it again. So I went the latter and I went and approached Dick Johnson, who's a V8 legend. And, yeah, we wrote his book and it ended up going really well and being a bestseller. And at the end of that, I was with Penguin at the time and Alison Urquhart, the publisher, said, what's next? Uh, we're going to do Jamie Winkup, a rugby league player. And I said, uh, never doing sport again. I said, uh, I work full-time in sport and I can't, you know, put all my downtime into sport as well. I'm going to go crazy and hate the thing I love. So she said, all right, have a think about it and give me some ideas. And it was the week week after I was at a kid's party and um, there was a bunch of people drinking beers around a fire and they were talking prison stories. So I butted my head in and they were a bunch of prison guards. And given that they were quite full, I thought, yeah, we'll see uh, if these stories are true or not. I'll give them a call during the week and if they are, we might have a book. So I went and met with one of them a week later and turns out that they weren't just true. The versions they were telling at the party were watered down because the the real and true stories were that shocking they couldn't even tell it on the drink around a bunch of other people. So that got me into to Long Bay, uh, that was the title I chose and wrote the book and it ended up being hugely successful and um, from there on in I had the publisher. And like, what's your next prison book every time you finish one? <laughs> um, why do you think 
Why do you think that is so successful, that the book was so successful? Is it because we're the curiosity? Is it the violence? Is it... Talk to me about that. What is it that people wanted to know? And how much time did you spend in the prison? Yeah, it was fear. It's fear. And that's what I based the whole premise on. It was what would happen to me? Uh, You know, the average person, that's the burning question in the back of your mind. Would I handle this? Would I die? Would I be raped? What sort of people are in there? So for me, I went into the project trying to be put you a fly on the wall. So it wasn't your traditional nonfiction where I was just spurting facts out. I wrote stories about the people and, you know, what happened to them and their journey. So I tried to put you inside their heads. It was almost a fictional taste, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, that that worked, obviously. Uh, I'm a great sleeper and I don't have many nightmares at all. But if I am going to have one, it's about being locked up. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it could happen to any of us, you know, whether it's mm. doing the wrong thing, one lapse moment of judgment, whether it's, you know, being set up or, mm-hmm. or wrongly mm-hmm. convicted or accused. It's you know, the biggest fear losing my freedom. But I think the other thing, the fearful thing is to navigate yourself in an environment that's completely abnormal or alien. You know, how do you survive that? Yeah, well, that's the question that we ask. Like, am I tough enough physically, number one? Yeah. Number two, if I don't have that physical toughness, is my brain and my smarts enough for me? To survive in a place like that, am I smart enough to to navigate around that? And um, that's something I really, really explore in um, Inside Man. Yeah, uh, the, the you know the mental capacity of you know can smarts outwit the brawn and the violence. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come come back to that. But with the with the book on on the prison, did you spend a lot of time in the? Were you given in, um, access? Oh, uh, visiting. So no, I wasn't taken behind the scenes. The Department of Corrections wanted nothing to do with me. Yeah. So it was, yeah, did spend a lot of time in prisons, but it was off my own bat and that was going to visit inmates. For each book I would have spoken to 60, 70 inmates and, and guards. So, yeah, and do you, do you kind of form a pattern about human behaviour after you speak? Uh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. But it, it's divided into categories. So the best way to describe it is firstly there's career criminals so yeah. they're your, you know, guys that are in gangs, drug dealers, um, people that have been sort of in and out their whole life and they just look at jail as part of the journey. Right. So they know they're going to get caught at some point, they know they're going to go to jail and they use that time in jail to, you know, increase their contacts, plan their next job when they get outside. You know, it's like a business school. Right. Then you have the other couple of elements. One is the um, the, the drug addicts. So they commit crime to fund their, their habit and, you know, they're in and out of prison their whole lives. They don't really have much control over it. Mm-hmm. Um, they steal for their high and yeah. when they get out generally or 99% of the time they go back to their old ways because they're, they're addicted. They've got those personalities and also their drug habit. So and there's no rehab that happens in prison for those people? They still get drugs inside there and even right. if it's sort of rehab. You know, someone might get clean and I'm going to change my life, but generally as soon as they get back into their old environment and their old friends that, you know, were those habit-forming people, they uh, they get back into it. And then you have obviously the next categories and that's the people that make the mistakes or the one-offs or the, you know, crime of rage. And, yeah, they don't generally go back once they get out. Then you have my least favourite group of people and that's the psychopaths and sex offenders. So I, I, I say they're mentally deranged. 
that's the best way to put it, even though they're not classified as, you know, mental prisoners and sent to crazy houses, which they should be. You know, if, if you're going to go and kill seven or eight people, there's got to be something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. If you're having sex with children, there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're raping girls or, you know, going and taking pictures at school, sorry, there's, there's something wrong with you and there's no helping them, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, out of those four categories I've just given you broadly, there's one category that, that can be helped and that's the um, the one-offs and financial crimes and, you mm-hmm. know, I need money, I'm going to commit a one-off crime because I'm in the shit. Mm. Um, yeah, those, those sort of people. So you took all that knowledge that you've had writing nonfiction and you've put it into The Inside Man. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what made you think you wanted to write fiction? Always wanted to write fiction. As I said, even with my first nonfiction, there was a huge fictional flavour and people used to say to me that I'm a uh, fiction writer writing nonfiction um, yeah. because of that flavour and they were always saying, when are you going to write fiction? You're perfectly suited to it. and Said as soon as someone gives me a go, it's um, you know, not something that generally uh, you can just step into. And yeah, always wanted to do it, but I always had a non-fiction project on. Like I was getting contracted before I'd finished my other ones, and sometimes multiple deals. But um, at the end of my last deal, I bumped into a lovely lady called Catherine Milne at oh. a writers' festival. I just don't finished. we just love her. We yeah. love her. Yeah. yeah. So I just finished giving a talk on um, the Australian heist at the auditorium at the Writers' Festival and I met, met up with some people for a drink and she was there for anyone else and it was just me and her and we got chatting and I found out she was the fiction boss and I got into her and um, she said, I'd love you to write a fiction. And I said, great, uh, can it be a ghost story or a witch story? Uh, <laughs> obviously my horror love coming out. And she said, no, it's going to be an action thriller yeah. um, like Lee Child. Have you read Lee Child? I said, no. She said, Jack Reacher. I said, oh, I know that, but I haven't read it. She goes, well, go and read it. And I think it was her plan from day one to make me an action thriller writer. And eventually um, when my contract's finished, we got in and chatted and Anna Valdinger came into the project and yes. said, look, we'll, we'll, we're going to offer you a, yep. a fiction. This was without writing a word, but there's going to be a couple of conditions. The first is that it's going to be an action thriller. The second is you have to create an action hero that can sustain a series. And the third was it has to be set in a prison. Wow. So, you know, they're obviously quite smart and with it and they knew that whatever I did for my first book, if it was in a prison, I was going to have a pretty good head start and, um, you know, obviously my scene setting and the environment was going to be like no one else's because I've had so much experience with it. Absolutely, yeah. So that was the task and off I went. Yeah, clever people to draw on your experience um, and bring it into fiction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sounds easier. Sounds pretty easy when it's spelled out like that. But yeah, yeah. So then, this is the first in in many. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. so yeah. yeah. I've got got another one which I'm writing now that I'm contracted to do. Yeah, the, the sequel, and then um, after that, I guess it depends how much your readers like it. If they buy lots of copies and fall in love with Riley Jacks like I have, um, yeah, they can. Um, all right. Well, why don't you give us a little pitch before we sign off? Tell us what the book's about. Okay. The book's about, so I had to create, let's just go off the, the premise. So I, I got uh, yeah. told I had to make an action hero and put him in a prison. Yeah. So the easiest way to do that would have been to, you know, create a ready-made action hero, all trained, all ready to go, dump him in a prison and let him go and kick ass yeah. or solve something. That would have been easy. But no, as I said, people read prison books because they're afraid. 
yeah. and they want to be afraid, none of that element would have been in it. And yeah. that's where people make the mistakes with spies. So I had to put a vulnerable young man into prison. So that's where it starts. So yeah. my action hero is like none other. He's created in a prison. He learns yeah. his spycraft not from, you know, training camps with the CIA or the army. He learns them from the toughest school of all, and that's inside Long Bay. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's, it's making a monster. Yeah. And that gives you a bit of an idea on where this goes. And the little twist is there's some hugely interesting plots yeah. going on behind the scenes and some reasons it, It's why. kind of you could not stop turning the page. I mean, it was so oh, scary and addictive. But, you know, as I said, it's my worst nightmare. So um, I was glad it was uh, them and not me. And I think the other point of difference too I like to say is that, um, yeah. you know, some of these action thrillers that I read, I've looked up some of the authors and it seriously doesn't look like any of them have been in a fight or uh, been in any of those situations. And a lot of this stuff comes from experience. Like I played rugby league and I've knocked around and, you know, had plenty of broken noses and biffs and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of realism in it. Mm-hmm. So it's I think you're going to get a taste of some fighting scenes and action scenes like yeah. never before because, uh, yeah, I call it method writing. I even... Uh, got the kids uh, to punch me in the face a few times to remember wow. what it felt like to be, you know, semi-knocked out and dazed and, you know, how much a body shot hurt and what it could do. So, Wow, yeah, that is that really method writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think more, the more successful um, fiction books, I don't know if you read any Kathy Reichs. Did you read any of hers? Yeah, yeah. But she's a forensic anthropologist herself and, and she writes what she, and she worked right up you know, until recently, mm. as well as writing, she worked at that. So I think when you, when the writer, I mean, I, I think for me as a reader, you know, the writing is more convincing, I think, when, you know, the research is kind of real. Yeah, I well, mean, there's a scene in you're there. You're writing a serial killer. I don't want it to be that real. <laughs> yeah, there's a little scene in there where uh, there's a fight on and and the, my hero gets a punch in the in the ribs just underneath the abdomen he goes down and my publisher and editor said oh come on he's you know that's not real is it i said have you ever been punched in that section of the body by a bloke of that size and it you know there's that realism in there that you know this is what actually happens in not only prison but also in fights like they can be over in a couple of seconds yeah wow so you've enjoyed the process enough to want to write a second yeah 100 percent this is this is what i want to do and um Obviously, if you haven't taken the hints, I want to be a horror writer, but, you know, I'm writing, yeah. for, writing for people, not myself. So, yeah. you know, obviously I think I'm best served in this genre and, yeah, it lets me go off into my own little world and, yeah, I'm loving it. So, And are hopefully. you doing it full-time? Uh, not at the moment. Yeah. Not at the moment I've still got my full-time job at the Daily Telegraph writing sport, but I'm hoping that it becomes a decision that needs to be made whether I can – I can do both, but it's all going to depend on the bottom line, and that's if people buy it. And and so, how do you make time for writing? Do you are you a late night person or an early morning person? Or Uh, definitely a night person. So that's happened from when I was working at McDonald's as a fifteen year old, doing closes all the way to pubs to mid dawns on the Telegraph. But yeah, I used to write in tents, so I'd pack my bag up whenever I had days off and pitch a tent and just write with no distractions, but I've been able to upgrade to a caravan now. So oh, good. they're really high rolling. It's got a toilet and everything. I don't have to weed in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> which it, it can be a distraction as well. Like I, I try yeah. and clear all distractions and yeah, there wasn't the distraction of being able to sit on a toilet before it was get it over with as quickly as possible. So <laughs> you didn't get bitten by a snake, but um, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a caravan. So I, I do it in chunks and pretty full time. Like, and do you uh, kind of give yourself a word count? I mean, is that what you do? Um, nah, no, no. I give myself, uh, you're not doing anything else except sitting at your laptop right. for yep. 18 hours a day. Wow. So, yeah. yeah incredibly disciplined guy. Uh, just so you know, I worked at McDonald's too when I was 15. How good was Macca's? I think really Loved it was it. my best job I ever had. Really loved it. It was such a great fun job. Um, and then I went on to work at Woolies at the checkout. As a so did you ever do what I did and uh, after close steal a whole box of eggs and then go and throw them at your friend's houses? No, I didn't do <laughs> Never crossed my mind, actually. Uh, uh, but closers weren't my thing, you know. That was because I'm a morning person, so I like the morning shifts. How about grab the keys to the manager's car when you were 15 and go and do donuts in the, the car park? No, I didn't do that either. <laughs> I think you and I might have been really different people. <laughs> I, I think that's why it was my favourite job in the world, to be honest. It mightn't be about the work so much. <laughs> it might be. But I do think it was good experience. You know what? I think jobs like that, and, you know, I'm not advocating low wages for anybody or anything like that, but I do think that you learn to work with jobs like that. You know, yeah, you 100%. learn the business of working, don't you? You know, yeah, I'm, I've been working since I was 13 in one facet or another, but I started as a chemist boy, picking wow. up strips on my bike and delivering them to yeah. elderly people, then paper boy as yeah. soon as I could get that job, then Macca's. Yeah. From Macca's into pubs where I was a glassy, then I ended up being a manager into what I do now. Yeah, and it was that was the culture, wasn't it? I mean, I'm sure you, you're a lot younger than me, but all of us had jobs. All of us worked right yeah. throughout, you know. That's what just what we did. But I actually have kids that are at that age now and I don't let them work because I think it also screwed me over in terms of my schooling. I, from doing those shifts till you. one in the morning, I yes. was going to school and waking up in pools of dribble. Yes. I'm um, just sleeping through lessons. So I, I tell my kids that I'll pay them double the McDonald's wage or what their mates are getting for every hour study they do. Yeah. So, and is that working for you? Uh, no. 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 <laughs> okay. It's not, but it's no. a thought that counts, isn't it? <laughs> you got to try it, right? <laughs> yeah. James, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for having me on and I hope everyone enjoys uh, The Inside Man and more importantly, everyone buys it and gives me a career. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.